Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue this journey into how to live a longer, healthier life. And today I thought we would focus on a huge issue, which is a barrier to living a longer, healthier life, and that is pain. If you Google pain, over four billion hits come back. It is somewhat of an illusion. Some people experience pain, other people don't. And today I have in studio with me a very, very lovely colleague. He was a classmate of mine way back at University College Cork, and he's a specialist pain medicine physician in Australia. He's a clinical director of Pain Matrix, a practice that he and others set up in Geelong and Melbourne in Australia. He's also a senior lecturer at Deakin University in Victoria, Melbourne, and he has been an innovator. He's had to innovate through the pandemic, but more especially because he lives in Australia. The territories are vast and many of the innovations from the pandemic have been adopted from Australia. So I'm really excited to talk to my lovely friend, colleague and classmate, Dr. Dermot McCoy. Dermot, welcome. Millicent, uh, many thanks. I'm talking to you from the Riviera of Victoria. <laughs> uh, it's come dusk here in Victoria. We're 23 degrees and it's late summer. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you. Um, it brings me back to our university days and uh, fun times. But this is a this is a huge subject. And I suppose if we start off with a definition the International Association for the Study of Pain, which is not a particularly rock and roll organization, defines it as, as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Now, that sounds like a very awkward definition, but when you think about it and reflect on it, it actually does describe the phenomenon. Of course, that definition has six notes of entomology and anything that, that a definition shouldn't require explanation. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's really good to put that definition on the table. Ironically, I had looked up that definition. I was going to ask you to explain it. So you've preempted me. Thank you, Dermot. <laughs> yeah, Millicent, something that I, I discuss with patients, that it is a sensory and emotional experience. And Outside of just the biological unpleasantness of pain that we experience or know about, we could probably put in grief, hunger, guilt, uh, love or love lost mm. into definition and it would fit. So because we do, we do talk about the, the pain of loss and the pain of grief. And so it is a very complex issue. Mm. And the pain of love you've just mentioned there as well. I mean, what I wanted to ask you was, you know, if you think about that definition, an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience. And as you say, it covers all aspects of living from love to life, to loss, to birth, to taste, etc. But, you know, it's something that we can't catch. We can't see. Is it an illusion? You know, is it real? Is pain real or is it an illusion? Because some experience it and others don't for very similar experiences. We have to accept the report that a patient has of pain. If they describe uh, central chest pain on exertion or the pain of labor or a twisted ankle, they're reasonably explainable biological reasons for that pain. But headache, migraine, 
trigeminal neuralgia are pains which we will never be able to see. So do we believe one and not the other? Difficult to describe, of course, as, and you mentioned taste. And I always joke that if I ever write a book about pain, it'll be pain in the taste of chicken because everybody compares a taste of meat or, or, or poultry to that of chicken. But what does chicken taste like? If you could describe the taste of chicken, what, what words would you say? Or, or maybe in another way, what, how could you describe the color yellow mm. or red? It's very difficult. We know what red looks like. We know what ch- chicken tastes like. We know what pain feels like. But what what does the patient experience and how do they put it into words? Yes, no, I, I agree with you that they don't know. And I see this all the time and I hear it in my clinic. I'm a rheumatologist, as you know, and patients complain of pains in their joints, pains all over their body when they have a condition called fibromyalgia. And it does require one as you said, to believe the patient. It's so important, but also to be empathetic. It's not just enough to say, I believe you, because you can't experience what the patient is feeling. You really need to empathise with your patient in order to help them, I believe. And this is one of the issues, and you've mentioned fibromyalgia, and associated with fibromyalgia, it has gone through so many iterations down through the years from the 1990 definition through to the more recent definitions and updates, I actually refer to it as chronic widespread pain rather than fibromyalgia because essentially fibromyalgia means sore, stiff muscles. And it is much more complex than that. Mm, There's fatigue, there's cloudiness, there may be um, irritable bowel syndrome uh, and, and all sorts of other symptoms associated with a thing that is really called sore, stiff muscles. So it's much more complex. Mm. And the science is emerging, certainly the biological science and the psychophysical science is emerging around it. Mm, absolutely. And just um, before we move on from that, I, I had meant to interject and and bring our readers' attention to an amazing book by Professor Christopher Eccleston, who actually wrote a book on the senses and how you perceive pain through the senses. And I think we'll put up a link to that on this chat at the end of the, I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Eccleston, who is a very notable pain researcher at the University of Bath, um, Dermid. So uh, Chris is a, a, a regular visitor to our conferences here and um, mm. socially a very fun be with actually yes. uh, and he any of his work is worth a look and a listen and to to watch any of his his lectures he really brings color and movement to what we deal with in the in our our pain consultation clinics every day so chris eccleston is is he's he's a huge force in 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 pain research and one that we listen to very carefully well, that's good i'm glad to hear it So basically, you know, on that theme, then, you know, we've discussed how the senses are so important, but they they still can't explain, you know, why a patient comes in and says, all my body is sore, every muscle, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't function. So when you get to somebody like that, what can you do to help them? I mean, from my perspective as a rheumatologist, I need to make sure there's no underlying disease. Um, so I do an investigation and a workup and make sure we're not missing anything. And sometimes fibromyalgia coexists with other conditions, which I will then treat. And then I sometimes feel a bit of an imposter fraud and you, you say, oh, I'll give you amitriptyline and go and sleep better. But really, that's just not a satisfactory answer to give somebody who's had 
terrible quality of life. So what innovations do you have to offer your patients who have widespread pain? What do you do for them practically? Well, the first thing is listen to the story that they tell. I suppose broaden this out a little bit. The human condition is one that we want our story told. We want it validated. We want it listened to. And we do that in song and story and poetry and dance down through the eons and cave paintings and sandstorms and all the rest of it. It has been recorded forever. So our story is important. And so if they have a story, sometimes you may be the first person to actually let them warble on for seven or 10 minutes telling you their experience, their lived pain experience. And then you can interrupt and you can use techniques such as reflective listening and motivational questioning to see what are they actually expecting from the consultation with you. And you can phrase that by saying, well, what do you expect me to do about it in a more aggressive way? Or you can say, what is your expectation of what you and I can achieve? And by using that sort of language, you're telling them you are on their side. You are going to help them through this issue and you may not be successful, but we will make we'll make progress. When I was doing my fellowship, I used to say to the patients naively, I don't have a magic wand. And of course, the nurses in the unit where I worked bought me a pink magic wand. I think it was a Barbie <laughs> wand with, with glitter and 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 sparkles on it. And I still have it. All the sparkles and glitter have fallen off. And it sits on my desk with an out of order sign on it. And, <laughs> and we sort of have about that. But it comes back to the point that I am listening to you. I do hear you. I am empathizing with your plight. And I, I know that I'm not going to cure you, but I'm not abandoning you. Mm. I think that's the first step. And then you can break it down into functions, sleep. And there's lots of things we can do with sleep. Exercise and, you know, using using the concept of, of pacing. If you can say, can you do 150 minutes of exercise? That sounds an enormous period of time. Break it down to five minutes walk twice in the morning, twice in the afternoon, six days a week. And you're, you've broken the back of, of that concept of so you just chip away at each of these elements, and it's a multidisciplinary thing. And on, on that subject, if they are then sent to see your colleague in physiotherapy and they deliver essentially the same message in a different voice, in a different series of words with slightly different intonation, then the patient will say, oh, I've, I've heard this message before. There's something in it. Let's go. Let's run with this. Mm. So do you think that patients can train themselves not to have pain and not to feel pain through working with a therapist who does listen and hear, which is the essence of reflective listening, and then creates a plan for them that is executed, say, in a multidisciplinary centre. We do this and we record the findings. And when we see a patient for the first time, we have a battery of psychophysical questionnaires, which we call the electronic persistent pain outcome collaboration. And we, we compare these as benchmarks um, every six or 12 months with how their progress goes. One of them is the catastrophizing score and the self-efficacy scores. And they can actually change and improve without the pain score 
moving at all. Mm. So, you know, you're moving the thought process to living with pain and functioning despite pain or improving their functioning despite pain. And I take, we shouldn't say that it's so difficult and so different to anything else. If in diabetes, what the treatment for diabetes is not insulin and tablets, it's lifestyle changes, weight loss, exercise, stop smoking, eat properly, and possibly insulin, and possibly other um, sugar-lowering drugs, and looking after your feet and your kidneys and your eyes. But it's the same lifestyle things for pain, for um, irritable or for for inflammatory bowel disease or for ischemic heart disease. The basics are the same. But could I challenge you there a little bit? Because I find yeah. the minute somebody has pain and you say, well, look, now we're going to look at the sleep and the diet, then often people perceive that as you don't believe them because you can't see their pain and you're just throwing all of these softer remedies and it's not considered significant. So I think having a framework where these are part of an overall plan is really important rather than because some clinicians don't have the tools to deal with patients with chronic pain. So they throw the the sleep and lose weight, etc. without saying, now this is part of an overall plan and we are going to get to a point where you might still feel pain, but you can deal with it, which is the essence of what you reflected on in those questionnaire outcomes that patients were still feeling pain, but yet they were coping with it and able to live a full and normal life. And that's exactly right. So the timing of this message, the timing of delivering those messages and delivering each element of those messages is really important. So that's not going to be something that you do on the first visit when you are developing a relationship and a therapeutic transaction Mm. and extracting and doing an examination. But it is something that you will drip feed in and it's the skills of communicating that very complex idea to a patient who's going to be probably experiencing these symptoms for a considerable period of time. And it is life th- life-changing because they're looking for a cure. And essentially, you're saying, well, I'm not going to cure you. And you, this is your lot. And this is your life. And but, yeah, but yes, I will not abandon you. And there are things we can do to improve them. But I think it's important to give people hope as well. And, you know, the cure comes from within, isn't it? Sometimes, I mean, yes, if there's a structural issue which can't be fixed, then pain certainly may linger. But sometimes patients, I mean, I have seen patients undergoing transformational journeys through unlocking, you know, an experience in the past or getting to deal with a chronic illness, a secondary chronic illness, whereby their pain does abate. Have you seen that? I would absolutely agree with you on that, Millicent. But I would say that they are probably the ones that we remember. But, you know, for every one of those, we will have nine or 10 or 12 that we will be managing for a considerable period of time. Uh, you know, hope is is an important aspect. And pitching that hope at the appropriate level, I think... Both of those things are really important, hope and reality. And hopefully the hope and reality will coalesce with a a good outcome. But your empathic communication, your the, the skills that you can bring to communication is so, so important. Mm, I, I think so. And just to summarize there, listening 
reflective listening, the timing of giving your message. And that comes with the skill of the communicator, but also not every subspecialist, we all deal with pain, might be the best person to deliver, you know, the, the message about what to do about the pain. So this is why, you know, a whole field of pain medicine has emerged, of which you're a major part and people like Chris Eccleston. So I think those points are very well taken and to be grounded in reality whilst giving hope, but not giving false hope. So I, I think those messages are, are quite important that you've brought out there, Dermot. Thank you. Yeah, and we could we could go on about that for, for quite some time. There are conferences about communication and um, you'll never get to the, 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 the holy grail, but we can just try. Yeah, exactly. And then in your MDT meetings where, you know, you now are able to offer them by Zoom and and because of the pandemic, but probably because of the geography of living in such a vast land, you've been able to offer these remotely. But they're amazing and they're very essential and they're probably a core part of your offering. But have you had any further innovation? So let's say somebody needs a pain stimulator. I mean, how do you handle that if they're in the Northern Territories and you're suddenly a thousand miles away? Are there any innovations that have emerged in recent years to help pain therapists manage their patients? Yes, the procedures that we do and that I do and that I'm interested in are using some of the best high technology that is available. And, you know, I'd love to take credit for the technology, but it's actually very clever engineers and physicists and computer people and people who understand Wi-Fi that have made these innovations. However, when we implant patients, the very small percentage of patients that will benefit by these technologies, when we implant them, uh, they need to be programmed, they need to be reprogrammed, and they need to have surveillance. And more recently, with ubiquitous uh, internet access, we can, or we, and when I say we, I, I'm including myself as a hero in this, with in false pretenses, but the programming can be done now online, in real time, with a video link to the patient. Sorry to interrupt you. Can you tell us what these devices are for, for my listeners? For a small percentage of patients with persistent pain of a neuropathic, so nerve pain, or sometimes with angina and, um, and visceral pain like pancreatitis, these sorts of things, we can use devices which have electrode arrays put in the posterior epidural space and allow stimulation patterns. So this is low dose, low amperage and voltage of electricity delivered to the spinal cord in various different patterns in order to decrease pain signals. It's been around for about the last 50 years, but it really has taken off in terms of development in the last 10 or 15 years. And now those patients can remain at home and have a certain amount of programming done over the internet at significant distances. So in Europe, it's been done from Belgium through to Germany. And here we do it across time zones because some of my patients do live in different time zones. I live in Victoria, one of the smaller states, but we have patients in New South Wales, South Australia and across in Tasmania. And so they can't travel to us, um, you know, 500 or 1,000 kilometers um, at the drop of the 
but you know sometimes that needs a, a flight which is expensive and time consuming so these innovations can be delivered across the internet and we welcome that i think more and more mm-hmm. of that sort of therapy will will follow those lines absolutely so these just to be very very clear these are like little tiny boxes that are inserted into somebody's back just bringing this down to very very layman's terms now dermid through a surgical procedure yeah. that are then tailored yes. for the pain that that particular patient is perceiving and then can be altered depending on how their pain alters. That's what these boxes are. It's using similar technology as a cardiac pacemaker. I see. Mm. And um, if, if your listeners wanted more information about this, it's on the NICE guidelines in the UK. And one of the big centres there is in St. Thomas's in London. Professor Adnan al has been a big uh, researcher in this field. Yes, so, a former um, colleague of mine. Know, As you know, I was a guy in St. Thomas's consultant. So um, he's he, he, he's a he's a giant of a, a researcher in this field. Other places that do it is the Liverpool uh, Centre in in um, the Walton Centre for Neurology and Neurosurgery. But yes, yeah, so that's that's the type of technology that we use. Just two weeks ago, I put one in for angina and a patient who had uh, come to the end of their treatment of you know surgical and medical treatment and it, it has worked um, very well. So that's one patient in in many, 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 many thousands of patients who suffer angina, but, you know, carefully selected. This is very expensive technology and uh, requires the skill of a whole team of people around them. How expensive is it, Dermot? Oh, Millicent, the wires that we use here in Australian dollars are between four, four and six thousand dollars, and the wow. anti-pulse generator. I think they start at about twenty-seven thousand, and they go upwards. Gosh, so this is a treatment for the minority, not the majority. Really, is what you're saying as well? Absolutely, minority of patients. Yes. So, what do the rest of the patients do? Can you give us some practical tips that you offer your patients on a day-to-day basis, and and how? Rather than telling patients what to do, do you kind of show them through your own lifestyle how to live a longer, healthier life and to deal with pain? You know, if monkey does what monkey sees. So if (laughs) the patient comes into your office and sees a stack of donuts and milky coffee um, all the time and sweets on the counter, there's a message that goes out. If they come in, our, our practice, we have a number of, well, I, I'll consider myself an elder lemon, but um, some of our my younger colleagues and myself, we cycle to work frequently and we leave the bike on the corridor just in view of the waiting room and we will leave our helmet on the side of the desk or hanging on the back of the door so that uh, the patients can see that even if you are slightly overweight and quite bald and middle-aged, you <laughs> Who can are you describing there, Jared? <laughs> oh, just myself. Just a big <laughs> picture of myself in the mirror, Millicent. Um, we can still make an effort and take some exercise. And I suppose cycling is my go-to place to have a think about things. I make big decisions when I'm out on on my bike. Um, And this sends out a message to the patients, oh, I didn't know you cycled. And um, nowadays, of course, we leverage that by saying, you know, well, you know, very elderly patients now can get on their electric 
bikes and uh, it, it I noticed them we notice more elderly patients out there on bikes with and, and it's a it's a great thing to see um so there was some of the some of the little cues um little tips that we just leave around and of course that works beautifully for the majority of people you know who, who aren't the ones who are going to have advanced innovative technologies but just as a counterbalance to that you know one of the things my mum, who was a very glamorous lady, always taught me was to dress up really nicely and it helps other people feel good. So I remember this particular day I put on my my usual nice, lovely dress and I went to visit an oncology patient and who used to be a model. And I remember got, getting feedback afterwards that she didn't want to see me anymore because I was too glamorous. It made her feel how her life had changed versus my life. And it really made me reflect on the image that you project to patients. Whilst it might fit most of the patients, there might be that one patient that you could really upset by leaving your helmet on the table when they can never even begin to think about getting on the bike. So is there any other little tips maybe for somebody where it's not practical for them to exercise or they're feeling so bad that they just nothing is going to cheer them up? What do you do for those people? But there are a percentage of patients that we will not be able to make progress with. And that is something that we have to accept. Now, even if we don't make progress with them, if you say, well, I'm going to discharge you back to your primary care physician and I have no plan for you. There are a number of patients that I see that I know I'm not going to make any progress with, but we speak about their pain or we talk about some other aspects of their life, mm. or sometimes something, nothing about medicine at all. And it's a visit, you might say, well, it's consuming resources that could be used by somebody else. But on the other hand, I'm supporting them in some at some level. I might actually be supporting their primary care physician at some level too. And we might swap around the medications a little bit. And little by little over many months, possibly years, those patients do actually improve. And I have reflected with patients just this month that they have their life on superficially just on, on, a, on a snapshot doesn't look all that great. But if you look at it over a number of years, their opioids have decreased substantially. Their outlook on life has changed or at least not deteriorated and we can rejoice on the progress of their children or their grandchildren or themselves or their or, or something else in their life that may that is of value to them so they may not be particularly measurable on a scale or a score or a percentage but they are meaningful to the patient you know sometimes around christmas they'll they'll turn around and say thank you for looking after me. And you say, well, I actually haven't done much for you. And they say, well, actually you have, and they can't articulate it and you just got to leave it there. Mm, so supporting. Mm. And um, I all, I mean, I've, I've got four sisters, so I've, I've, um, I've been trained to have a, a keen eye for fashion <laughs> or what I think is, fashion. and I will always remark on a lady's scarf or a brooch or a bracelet or the new shoes or something. And many patients do make an effort when they come to see us. Some, some of them don't, of course, but some of them do. And when they when it's noticed, they 
I won't say sprint out of the room, but certainly they're, they've got their shoulders back and their chest out and a little bit more pride about them. Mm. Um, so they're small little things. They're tiny little things. They come from from an experience. And of course, experience is a, is a, a litany of mistakes made and learned. Mm. Of course, what you're articulating there really is this concept of support and empathy and sort of getting inside the mindset and, and just being real and honest with the patients. And I think that's the, the essence of it, isn't it, is to have this real relationship. And I am so grateful that I have so many patients in my practice over the last 20 years. Even when I lived in Canada, I still have some patients who still come to London. And that is the ultimate reward for any physician. And I'm sure in your specialty with chronic pain, when you help people, it must be incredibly rewarding, Dermot, and give you a sense of, wow, this is really good. I'm feeling good today about my life. On the back of our ID badges here in Australia, and it's, uh, it might be the same across the world. Um, on the back of it, behind your photograph, there's a, a list of all the codes in a hospital. Code red, code blue, code yellow, code orange. And they're all bad. Nothing, if you have a code brown, the computer system goes down, or a, a code orange, an external threat. These are all bad things. So we have designed or, or in jest really articulated a code rainbow, mm. which is when a patient comes back to see you and says, I'm feeling so much better. I haven't required my medications. I'm going on holidays. Thank you. That's a code rainbow. And you've oh, got wow. to rejoice with your patient on that and celebrate it with your colleagues and say, well, I had two code rainbows this morning. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Love that. That's a, that's a little thing that we just share and we sort of little laugh about it. It is something, and I think that's part of the whole self-preservation as well, uh, Millicent. We, we spoke a little bit about this um, before this program, about self-preservation. It's a soporific experience talking and dealing with distress, mm. pain, and many times quite dysfunctional lives of patients who are broken and damaged. And so we have to look after ourselves. We've got to be able to turn the key in the office and go home and literally switch that part of your brain off. Mm, and if that means not seeing the consult consultation that you've been asked to see at five o'clock on a Friday evening and say, well, I will see them tomorrow um, at 11 o'clock in the morning when you've had something to eat and a night's sleep and have thought about it. Because if you're not giving up yourself to a high degree, then you're probably not doing the patient any good either. I mean, we could talk about burnout. It happens in, in pain meds and it happens in all aspects of, of clinical practice in, in, in medicine and certainly in nursing. But um, there are ways. Holidays are not a luxury. Holidays are essential a rejuvenation, absolutely essential. Well, you know, talking about burnout, it is actually really, really topical at the moment. Last night, Adam Kay's book, This Is Going to Hurt, was aired on BBC. I mean, it, it was harrowing and funny and and brings back lots of memories and obviously is an exaggeration maybe of what we, we've all experienced. But you and I trained in the trenches in, in Ireland and we were let sink or swim, really, weren't we? And and we saw gruelling things and with, you know, we, we really, really had to survive in the trenches back in the day. 
But I think this is very, very topical because of post-pandemic, you know, the clinician, I would say clinician as opposed to just the doctor, because we let's not forget our nursing colleagues and the pharmacists and the social workers and the admin staff. It's a whole team effort in hospital. And burnout is a real phenomenon, particularly at the end of a gruelling pandemic. But the pandemic has probably brought this to the fore. It was always there, but we weren't allowed to talk about it because when you're a doctor, it's a vocation. You shouldn't complain. You should, you know, this is a vocation. Our patients are the ones who should be doing the complaining. But I think it's important that the wider community of patients, of managers, of the public, maybe have some empathy towards, you know, the soporific effect that you've described that we as clinicians can suffer. And that we need, the clinician must heal themselves and must remain well so we can give the, of our best to our patients every single day. I, I could not agree with that more. And we often feel that coming up to the Christmas holidays, you're you're essentially limping over the line, hoping, you know, getting into that summer Christmas, well, that summer here at Christmas time. Um, but we really shouldn't be just hanging out to get over the line, but rather feel we're, we're pacing ourselves and we should probably look, look in the mirror and, and, and lecture ourselves the, the way we might lecture our patients about pacing. And maybe we need to give ourselves a little rainbow every now and again. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me. I think you've really opened up my eyes and the and hopefully the ears of my listeners on how to deal with pain, this huge problem, millions and billions of people on our planet suffering from pain from all different um, walks of life and from many, many uh, a varied variety of causes and manifested in different ways. And the key messages are listen and hear your patients, communicate, support, Yes, be practical with a plan and we can offer innovative therapies for a minority. But for the larger majority, it's working with your patient and also for the clinician to protect and, and mind their own health and well-being. And this is the key for us all to live a longer, healthier life. So thank you so much, Dermot, for joining me this morning. It's been a real pleasure and so nice to connect again after so many years. Indeed. Millie, thanks a million for inviting me and um best wishes to all of your listeners and indeed to you. Thank you so much. And thank you to my listeners for joining in today. And as always, we'd love a review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps to inform our series moving forward. Or if you'd like to just drop us feedback on hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. And tune in next week when we'll be releasing a really, really interesting review from Joe Harrison, CEO of Milton Keynes University Hospital. And I have a number of really exciting guests also moving forward. You can always look on our website to see who's coming up. But today's discussion about pain, the magnitude of the problem, how we go about dealing it and talking about one of the barriers to living a longer, healthier life is a really important discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And tune in next week when I'll be releasing a really interesting interview with Dr. Tamsin Lewis, a professional athlete, physician, um, psychiatrist who herself has suffered long COVID. And we'll be talking about pain and also difficulties dealing with problems in your life. And Tamsin will be reflecting on her experience as an athlete, but also her own experience of having long COVID. So I think that will be a very interesting follow on discussion to Dr. McCoy. Thanks for listening.